This is the Serving Church Fellowship study of Revelation 14, beginning verse 9 from July 26, 2020. We left off Revelation 14, verse 8. Before we get to verse 9, and we may not make it a whole long way today because this is deep stuff. I want to draw a parallel. So if, if you've got your scriptures open, either virtually or with the real thing in your hand, um, I you know, I use both, but I tell you, it, it, there's nothing to me, and I'm sure it's generational, like having it in my hand. You know, I'm, I'm analog in that way. But anyway, uh, if you have maybe your bookmarker there in chapter 14 of Revelation... Also, flip over to Matthew chapter 13. And I'm just going to review this very, very quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But what's happening in Matthew 13, as Jesus is telling his disciples what is to come, he's looking ahead and we see it happen in, in chapter 14. Okay? Hang on just a second. Um, John, if you could mute, just press uh, star six, and then when you want to chime in, press star six again. We're getting a little bit of feedback uh, from your phone. Yeah, either press... Uh, all right. How's that? Nope. Uh, do you have a mute button on your phone? Oh, All that, right. that... let me try something else. Okay. Let me try something else. <laughs> That's better right there. Yeah. Perfect. And, and feel free to chime right back in. Uh, just uh, getting a little feedback. All right. Matthew 13. Let me go over this really quickly. And uh, in, your, in your private time, uh, if you want to flip back there later this week, you'll see how Matthew 13 and, and uh, Revelation 14 weave themselves together. In Matthew 13, we reviewed this a little bit last week, Jesus did a radical uh, change in his manner of teaching. He started using parables or stories, and remember we broke that, that uh, word uh, parabole in the Greek in, into its two sections. Para, uh, which means to come alongside something, uh, and then bole, to throw something. And so what, what we have is, is Jesus taking truths that God had yet to reveal and explaining them by using stories that the people would be familiar with. So he's putting these two together. That's the sense of the word parabole or parable. And so he's explaining new truths that people hadn't heard before with stories that they were familiar with from agriculture. All right, so in chapter 13, Jesus begins this new form of, of teaching. And there are, uh, depending on how you count them, there are either seven or eight parables here. Uh, the sower, remember that, the, the farmer who sows on different kinds of land and, and uh, the seeds will grow where the land is fertile and in some cases where it's not, the seeds don't grow at all. 
And then the weeds. And this is important. Weeds growing amongst the good wheat. And it's a reminder to us that uh, God is allowing evil, even, and at least the non-believing populace to grow up with us. And I believe that's that, that, that he's allowing us to grow up next to each other so that the weeds have the opportunity to hear the gospel. In the end, however, the weeds will be uh, taken out and only the good wheat uh, will be saved for heaven, that good wheat representing the uh, believers. And then there's the parable of the mustard seed. Uh, at that time, the mustard seed in that part of the world was the smallest seed there was. Uh, in other parts of the world, there, there was actually a seed that was smaller, but those in the, uh, in the Middle East wouldn't have known about it. So Jesus correctly tells them the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. And he talks about the fact how uh, in the kingdom of God, it's like a mustard seed that is planted very, very tiny, the smallest of all seeds, and yet it grows because the mustard seed itself could grow to 12 to 15 feet tall in the first year, in the first season. So although it's a tiny seed, it's a rapidly growing seed. And Jesus's point there is that uh, the kingdom of God, representative by believers, they're going to start like a small seed with Christ while he's on earth. And they're going to grow tremendously. Mike, excuse me yes. a moment. Yes. Uh, I hear all kinds of background noise. Is it, I can't, it's hard to hear you. I, I looked, I have everything quiet here, but I don't know where it's coming from. Um, I'll watch the screen here and, uh, okay. It's all right. Go ahead. It's, yeah, if, it's if, kind of stop now. If I mute one of you, feel free to unmute. Um, I'll just watch and, and see where the noise, if, if I can, is coming from. All right, so there's the mustard seed. And then uh, remember the parable of the yeast or, uh, or the leaven? It's talking about the fact that when you put yeast uh, into the dough, that the yeast grows through all the dough. It is unstoppable. And the interpretation that I side with there is the yeast is the body of Christ, the Christendom. Uh, those who follow Christ, excuse me, and that the growth of the church is unstoppable. The growth of believers is going to be unstoppable, and it, and it still continues today. And then the hidden treasure. This is really interesting. Uh, the hidden treasure is, is where a, a man is out in a field, doesn't own the field, uh, but he's in a field, and he finds some treasure. And so he buries the treasure to protect it, and then he goes back to town, and he liquidates everything he has so that he can buy the land. And he buys the land and then owns where the treasure is. Uh, and so the treasure being the body of Christ. Dallas Theological Seminary guys, I rarely disagree with them. They think that the treasure is the nation of Israel. Uh, I think it could be. God does refer to them as his treasure. I would agree with those that would expand that to include the whole body of Christ, uh, since Jesus didn't um, narrow it down and just talk about Israel itself. Uh, it could go either way. 
go either way. And then there's the pearl of great value. This is kind of the same, uh, the same thing. Uh, uh, a man finds uh, a pearl of, of great value, and and he uh, um, he protects it, and and it's along the same line of, of the hidden treasure. Then there's the net. The net is cast out into the ocean. Uh, fish are brought in, and uh, then those that are uh, those that are um, not edible, are thrown out. Those would be the non-believers. The good fish are kept. Uh, that would be the, the believers. And then there's uh, the new and old treasures, saying that a, uh, a man goes into his storeroom, and he, like the scribes, he comes out, and he has uh, both old and new treasures, and they're both uh, as valuable. And that's because, uh, as, as we look at the body of Christ, both the law and the prophets are valuable because Jesus comes as the Messiah and he is the fulfillment of, of the law. Okay, I'm going to mute there a little bit. That may help a little bit of the background noise. Um, so as we look at what's happening in Matthew 13, Jesus is constantly making reference to sorting out. And it's the sorting out of the believers from the non-believers, which is exactly what we're seeing here in, uh, in chapter 14. So uh, if you have time, go back and just review that chapter uh, 13 of Matthew, Matthew 13. And I think you'll catch very quickly how that really weaves itself into what's happening here on uh, in chapter uh, chapter fourteen, all right. Okay, let's uh, let's start with verse nine, uh, Revelation fourteen. Then a third angel followed them, shouting, "Anyone who worships the beast and his stature, or who accepts his mark on the forehead or on the hand, must drink the wine of God's anger." It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of holy angels and the Lamb. Thus, here we go, verse 11, and, and this, this, is, uh, this can be a, a tough one. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. It's a troubling passage in, uh, in, in many, many ways. And um, here's why. Those who lean towards a doctrine of, uh, you can call it uh, annihilationism, that means you just cease to exist after you die, would say that non-believers just cease to exist after they die, and that's their judgment. However, that's difficult to defend when you look at the passages here. <clears throat> there are three main doctrines that cause us to get really deep into defining our, our theology about eschatology, the, the, the doctrine of the end times. And we have to wrestle this stuff to the ground. 
there, there are three things that I think are important. One is, what are the results of sin and unrepentance? What does God say about that? What does Paul say about that? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Number two, God's justice is perfect justice. And God's justice will never contradict itself. So what we have in Scripture is our plumb line. And then thirdly, what we believe about hell is important. Is it a place of eternal punishment physically and spiritually? Is it an undefined type of separation for God, or is it non-existent for those who reject Christ? So questions come up, and you get this often from folks. How can a merciful God allow people who reject him to be punished for all eternity? Well, that gets countered with the fact that God offered a salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, and he withheld or he withholds judgment until all have had the opportunity to hear the gospel and respond to it. So, does God violate his previous pronouncements about justice and punishment? Does he violate, violate his own scripture? And I'm not intending to paint anyone to a corner here. I'm just saying these are things that we need to wrestle with. Um, I'm going to do this with, with a caveat. I'm going to mute everyone uh, because I'm getting feedback in here, and it's a little difficult to keep my brain going when I'm hearing two of me uh, at different times. Please unmute. For those of you on the phone, it's star six. Um, and, and what I'll do, uh, I will stop regularly and ask if there are any questions and unmute. Okay, or if you let me to do that, and, and that would help me a little bit in moving through here. So I'm not in an, intending to manipulate or paint anyone to a corner here, but simply pointing out that if Christians can't define what they believe about hell, then it's very difficult for them to introduce others to Christ because they're leaving out a, a major part of the gospel story. I want, to, um, I want to quote Randy Alcorn here. Many of you are familiar with his uh, book called Heaven, and I'm going to stop after that. We'll unmute everybody and, and see if there are any questions. Um, wow, this is tiny print. Hang on just a second. <laughs> okay, here we go. Many imagine, again, this is Randy Alcorn out of his, uh, his book, uh, Heaven, on pages 25 and 28. Many imagine that it is civilized, humane, and compassionate to deny the existence of an eternal hell. But in fact, it is arrogant that we as creatures would dare to take what we think is the moral high ground in opposition to what God the Creator has clearly revealed. We don't want to believe that any others deserve eternal punishment, because if they do, so do we. But if we understand God's nature and ours, we would be shocked, not that some people go to hell, and where else would sinners go, but that any would be permitted into heaven. 
Unholy as we are, we are disqualified from saying that infinite holiness does not demand everlasting punishment. By denying the endlessness of hell, we minimize Christ's work on the cross. Why? Because we lower the stakes of redemption. If Christ's crucifixion and resurrection did not deliver us from eternal hell, his work on the cross would be less heroic, less potent, less consequential, and thus less deserving of our worship and praise. As theologian William G.T. Shedd put it, the doctrine of Christ's vicarious atonement logically stands or falls with that of eternal punishment. Randy Alcorn goes on to say, Satan has obvious motives for fueling our denial of eternal punishment. He wants unbelievers to reject Christ without fear. He wants Christians to be unmotivated to share Christ and he wants God to receive less glory for the radical nature of Christ's redemption, a redemptive work. And then one more paragraph from Randy here, and then I'll, I'll open it up for questions. Scripture says of those who die without Jesus, <clears throat> they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. That's in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. <clears throat> because God is the source of all good, and hell is the absence of God, hell must also be the absence of all good. Likewise, community, fellowship, and friendship are good, rooted in the triune God himself. But in the absence of God, hell will have no community, no camaraderie, no friendship. Randy Alcorn continues, I don't believe hell is a place where demons take delight in punishing people and where people commiserate over their fate. More likely, each person is in solitary confinement, just as the rich man is portrayed in hell in Luke 16, Misery loves company, but there will be nothing to love in hell. All right. Let me unmute uh, for those of you. Are there any reactions, any comments or questions at, at this point? <laughs> it it kind of goes in and out, Mike. So I'm getting sort of the, um, the gist of it. I don't know what the problem is. I have no noise around me, but it might be my phone. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm muting everyone in between, so you should be getting the, the cleanest signal we can get. Um, so do you, do you see why it's important to approach Chapter 14, especially at this point, and have decided what your perspective is on what hell is? Because if we're not sure, then what we're reading here makes no sense or it or it's just confusing so i wanted to provide you with that background from from randy alcorn and um just very briefly there's are, are there any other comments before i go on okay <clears throat> let me give you a, a couple of other perspectives on hell itself in terms of doctrinal issues Universalism claims that all people 
whether they're believer or not, are going to be with God in eternity. So the preacher's job in the Universalist Church is to let people know, you may not know it, but you're going to heaven, uh, regardless of whether you believe in God or not. And that, that's, that, that's the, the folly of, of Universalism. They, they park on very loose interpretations of John 12.32, which says, you know, about drawing all men unto myself, um, First uh, Timothy two four that God desires that all men would be saved. They they that's what they park on, but it's a uh, very loose interpretation of that. So that's universalism. Universalism means everybody gets saved. <clears throat> Doesn't matter whether they know it or not, whether they receive Christ or not. Everybody goes to heaven. Conditionalism defines everlasting punishment for the non-believer as simply ceasing to exist, or annihilism. Uh, and that means ceasing to exist physically and spiritually. You just, poof, you're gone. Um, this is, a, <clears throat> for those of you who have the message, this is Eugene Peterson's uh, take on what we just read, Revelation 14, 9 through 11. Uh, an angel followed shouting and warning, if anyone worships the beast and its image and takes the mark on forehead or hand, that person will drink the wine of God's wrath, prepared unmixed in his chalice of anger, and suffer the torment from fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. Smoke from their torment will rise age after age, no respite for those who worship the beast and its image, who take the mark of its name. Now that all points, and I'll unmute here in a second, this all points toward about six chapters ahead to Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. Think about what we just read, now listen to Revelation 20. And I saw a great white throne, and the one sitting on it, the earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, uh, the sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their deeds. <clears throat> then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, we'll review Revelation 20 when we get there, but any, any comments or questions about this part? Okay. All right. We'll, we'll move on. Going back to <clears throat> chapter 14 now, verses 9 through 11. Here's a, there, there are two main points that we're going to see here in 9 through 11. One is that punishment is going to be assigned to those who oppose God, uh, who take the sign of the beast 
uh, for economic purposes and those who worship the beast and its image. So these are the folks left <clears throat> on earth. Uh, the beast has now set up the image in the uh, temple, and uh, people come there to worship the beast. And so this talks about that, and then secondly, that their punishment is not for a time, their punishment is forever. And this brings out the serious question for, for those who do not understand how a merciful God could punish people who oppose Christ or do not believe in him forever. Dr. David Hawking uh, provides this perspective in his book, the book of Revelation, and page 444. Here we go. He writes this, It appears that his holiness, justice, and righteous character demands it. If there is eternal life for the believer, then simple logic requires that there is eternal punishment for the unbeliever. Matthew 25, 46 states clearly, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous to life eternal. To all those who attempt to make a difference between the word everlasting and the word eternal, they are exactly the same in the Greek text. Well, what is that word in the Greek text? Uh, the, the word in the Greek is ionios, ionios. And that ionios means without beginning and without end. And we see it used in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal, ionios, eternal life. Now, if you look at First Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, the King James Version uh, translates it this way, and it uses the word everlasting instead of eternal. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power? All right, so here we see in the New Testament the word eternal, ionios, and the word everlasting, and the word everlasting is that same Greek word, ionios. Now, why is that important? It's be important because some who um, believe in the, in the doctrine of uh, annihilism or conditional, uh, believe that you cease to exist. And they try to redefine everlasting versus eternal and say that one of them means, well, it's just for a time, and the other means it lasts forever. N no, in the Greek it's the same word. So everlasting and eternal, if you hear this argument, uh, you can come back and say, no, it's the word Greek word ionios, and both eternal and everlasting mean no beginning and no end. Always was, is, and always, uh, always will be. Okay, any, any questions there thus far? Any comments? I know I'm throwing a lot at you here. All right. We'll move on. Verse 11, the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. So verse 11, verses 9 through 11 there are giving us a picture of what happens 
to those who deny and oppose God. Now, in verses 12 to 13, uh, God changes the vision that he's giving John, and now he's going to address believers. So let's go to verses 12 and 13 now in chapter 14. Verse 12, this means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, and that means while on earth, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith their faith in Jesus. So uh, he's speaking here now to those who are going through the tribulation. You must endure persecution patiently, and that's easy to say if we're not the ones going through it, right? But that's what God's message is. Endure patiently. And verse 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed, for they will rest from their hard work, for their good deeds will follow them. So while we can generally apply verse 13 to all believers, that after death they will experience eternal rest and eternal reward, the context here is specifically talking about those who come to Christ during the tribulation period, perhaps from the 144,000, we don't know. But those who come to Christ during the tribulation period are going to be martyred, except for the 144,000, remember. They are, they are protected. Now, the next seven verse, verses address the, the messages of a second group of angels regarding the the harvest of the entire earth. Um, so before I get there, any questions up to this point? Everybody's uh, heads are rolling around in their eyes, right? <laughs> Holy Okay, this is Brenda. This is Hi, Brenda. Brenda. Hi. So, okay, uh, 12 and 13 speak about, um, we're not here anymore. So this is during the tribulation correct so do the ones that received christ get to witness the ones who are uh sentenced to um is this all a a a gathering of everybody and then there's some that are cast out forever and then the people that are that got saved do they get to witness that or is it just two separate judgments or whatever yeah well let me go back to matthew 13 well no let me let me come back let let me come back to revelation so i don't confuse the issue what's happening here is that the 144,000 because of their walk with Christ. These are the Jewish people that have come to Christ, you know, represent both tribes. Because of the way they are reacting, not so much because they're preaching, because it doesn't indicate they're they're preachers. What it indicates is because of their lifestyle, people are looking at them, a la 1 Peter 2.12, and for some reason, because of their lifestyle, because of doing good works, uh, people receive Christ because of their witness. Now, those people that come to Christ are going to be martyred. 
And so that happens before the judgment. Okay. They, yeah, okay. they are yeah. martyred and they are taken to heaven. So they're not around uh, to see Armageddon. Okay. Okay. Does that answer? Right. Am, am I right. reading that question right? Am uh -huh. I close to what your question was? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I get. I. I, I get it now. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Re and remember, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, as we look at chapters twelve through uh, fifteen, remember. There's no continuity of time here. We have to be very careful how we fit it in. 12 to 15 are not necessarily chronological. They're just explanations or sidebars or, right. or commentary, okay. right, on, on the right. main events that are going to pick up uh, in chapter 16. And okay. so we kind of, so where this fits in is before the judgment, uh, and it, it is before Armageddon. Uh, what we're seeing here is is the final probably three and a half years of the, the tribulation period where people uh, do come to Christ, but ultimately all those who come to Christ are going to be martyred, and then God withdraws the 144,000. They will not be martyred. They have his protection on their foreheads. They will be taken to heaven, and all that's left on earth will be the anti-God people. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So does that help a little bit, maybe? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Any, any other comments? We don't know when the 144 friends go to heaven. We uh, accept before heaven. And we don't know that seven-year period Okay, the first three years is before the Antichrist comes on the world scene, right? Can you can you bring your mic down just a little bit? It's yeah. cut, cutting out just a little bit. Yeah, it is. Huh. Try that. Okay. <laughs> um, here. Hold on. Let me change my mic because... That's as best as I can. Oh, she's so So what we've been, well, to, to, while you're doing that, the, the partial answer to your question is um, <laughs> we've been looking at the first three and a half years of the tribulation, right? And during that time, the Antichrist will emerge, but not he's not going to make his main play yet. Uh, by the time we hit that three and a half years and we start the second three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation, that's when uh, the false prophet begins to uh, assign religious authority to the, uh, to the beast, the Antichrist. Uh, his image is, the Antichrist image is, is put up in the temple that he constructs, and uh, the false prophet calls everyone to go worship the Antichrist. And then he starts, remember, he started off as this peacemaker, this cool guy that is bring peace to the world, and then uh, suddenly there's a 180, and he becomes this murderous uh, dictator and, and such. So that's, uh, that's kind of the summary there. Okay, uh, but, all right, so the first three and a half years, however, could be the period that we're in right now. We're, we could be anywhere in the first three and a half years, Correct. Well, it, de starting. It, it depends on your perspective of the, oh, the rapture. rapture. 
Yeah, right. right. Okay. Uh, if you are a a pre-rapture but, person, then well, I to be, but yeah. What then, about I mean, right now? I missed something in that. Excuse me. So, so Lee, what I was asking is, is uh, could we be in the first three and a half years oh, now of tribulation because the Antichrist hasn't come really on the scene? I mean, he could be around, but not on the scene and and the second thing is is you don't have to take the mark of the beast correct until that three and a half year mark when the antichrist comes to power right it would it would appear in timing that that uh people are not taking the mark of the beast right at the beginning of the tribulation period it's as the antichrist is is moving up in his authority and establishing uh his rule and again whether we're in it now depends upon your perspective on when the rapture happens. Right. Uh, if, if you're a pre-rapture person, and I, I kind of park there, well, but you don't have to be a pre-rapture person. Uh, if you're pre-rapture, then no, because we'll be gone. Um, we'll be gone by the time this, this happens. Uh, Want to go back to, was it you, Lori, or, or Brenda that talked about 144,000? Remember the image, and this was back last week, of Christ with the 144,000 next to him preparing to come to earth. And that will be the second coming. That, that will be when the new Jerusalem descends. Uh, Jesus is going to touch down on earth. Uh, for his second arrival, and the 144,000 are poised with him, remember, in, in, that, in that picture here. So uh, in terms of just following the timeline of 144,000, they're taken to heaven without being martyred, and then they enter the picture again when Jesus comes back down to earth, they're right with him. And so... Uh, there is great significance there in terms of uh, the nation of Israel. And that's where the, the replacement theology falls down uh, to say that the, re, the, the, church replaces the, chur, the church replaces Israel. It doesn't. Uh, both uh, are, are part of being the bride of Christ, but God has special things in store for the nation of Israel. And in no way does the new covenant take away from that um, so the, the, the 144 though do not go to heaven until at what point the end of the seven years or no, the beginning of the three and a half left see, we don't we don't half. know we don't know the exact time all we know is when jesus prepares to return they're in heaven with him yeah yeah Okay. All right. So, but but you know, again, it's one of those things in in, in chapters twelve through uh, fifteen. There's not an exact chronology, and so we kind of have to do our best to estimate where this is happening. So, what we can say for sure is, at the end of the tribulation period, as Jesus is preparing to come back and establish his kingdom, the hundred and forty-four thousand are with him. So, somewhere between the time that they were witnessing on earth. And Jesus' second coming, they're taken back up to be with him without being martyred 
on earth during the uh, during the tribulation period. Mike, okay. excuse yes. me, I have a question. Uh, where can I find out about the 144,000? I must have missed something in this series because I don't want you to have to go back and reinvent the wheel. You already talked about it. Uh, who the 144,000 were, I, I must have missed that. They're not us, Lee. <laughs> there, there are 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, the, the, from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 people, which equals 144,000. Right, got it. And uh, the first appearance, chapter 7? Somebody help me with that. I'm doing that from memory. Uh, may, maybe earlier, but... Um, we see them appear, and then nothing said, and then appear again, and then appear again in Revelation. But, Got it. Yeah, but the basic, the important part is there are 144,000 during the tribulation period who come to Christ and who are Jews, representing the 12,000 12, from each of the, each of the tribes of Israel. And God protects those specific 144,000 with some type of mark on the forehead, according to Scripture. They cannot be harmed. They will not be harmed by the Antichrist or the beast or the, or the, or the, or the dragon. Uh, they will be protected on earth and then taken to heaven and not martyred uh, during the tribulation period. And then they return to earth with Christ. That's the thumbnail sketch. That's a great sketch. That helps? <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Any, uh, any other questions before we go yeah. on? Uh, yes, I have one. Yes, Jenna. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, have we gone over where it talks about uh, there will be a new heaven and a new earth when it talks about the coming of the new Jerusalem? We, am, I, am I ahead of the last yes. Yeah, yeah, you are, and there's nothing wrong with that. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that is coming. Uh, however, Janetta, you are right in that we we got a glimpse of that as uh, in 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 the previous weeks we saw Jesus standing on Mount Zion, Zion mm. always referring mm -hmm. to Jerusalem, with the hundred forty four thousand. Okay. Okay. So. Uh, we get a glimpse of that here, and I want to say that was back in chapter 13, and I have my little tiny print Bible, and my contact right now is blurry, and I can't read it. So I think it's somewhere there. It's uh, in, in chapter 13 where we see that, that vision um, of Jesus uh, standing on Mount Zion uh, with his uh with 144,000 does that help on that so yes okay. you're, you're right actually on both scores we have seen it a glimpse of it but we mm -hmm. won't get a full explanation of it until uh, uh we get into chapter 20 or so and then we'll see okay. the new jerusalem and the new earth yes okay now when christ returns to earth he brings the 144,000 with him is that all he brings at that point? No. No, but but what we're seeing is the emphasis on the 144,000 
standing right beside him. Now, what's okay. the significance of that? It's not written here as an interpretation, but my belief is the significance is to remind us of God's love for undying and eternal love for the nation of Israel. So the fact that at the return of Christ, the 144,000 are, are there standing on Mount Zion with him, the new Jerusalem, I think speaks to God affirming the significance and his love for the 144,000. Ultimately, we'll all be uh, in, in, the, in the new heavens and the new earth. It will be right. populated by all believers. But uh, I believe the reason for this is that God is pointing out how special the nation of Israel is and how he is uh, being true to his commitment, his covenants with Israel. Because remember, during the, the, um, uh, during the battle, the great battle of Armageddon to come, Israel, the environs there, the, 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 even the, the, the legal area, Jerusalem, is going to be under tremendous attack. It's the enemies trying to do away with, with the Jewish people, and he will not succeed. But uh, anyway, long answer to a very short question. I think that's the significance of the 144,000 there standing with Christ. Uh, unless any of you, have any of you heard a different Interpretation of that. Okay. By the way, it is it is not easy to find a lot of these interpretations because a lot of scholars don't want to mess with the revelation. They just don't don't tackle it. Okay. So all of this now is uh, I'm going to mute again just so uh, for the feedback. All right. All of this now is, is pointing towards chapter 20. Janetta, it's coming. <laughs> and, uh, and let me just read a little bit of chapter 20 and, to review it. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the excuse me, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their, uh, to their deeds. All right, now, as I have now dropped all of my notes, hang on just a minute. Another angel, and this is verse um, 15, going back to uh, Revelation 14. Another angel came to the temple and shouted. Now, this is where we get really a, a, a good picture of that Matthew 13 passage. Then another angel came to the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Swing the sickle! For the time of harvest has come, the crop on earth is ripe, so the one sitting on the cloud 
will swing a sickle over the earth, and the whole earth was harvested. So we have this, this picture of, of Jesus ready to do the great harvest. He has a sickle in his hand. And this is, again, this is in parable form. Uh, it's not a literal sickle, but the sickle represents Jesus is going to uh, do a harvest. Now, when John says the whole earth was harvested, what does he mean? Who is the harvest? What is the harvest? And the answer to that question is probably answered by uh, considering the passages in, in verses 15 to 16 and 17 to 18 together, because there are two harvests that occur. So let me put these verses together. Let me review them real quick here. 15 and 16, and then 17 and 18. Here we go. 15. Then another angel from the temple shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Swing the sickle, for the time of harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe, so the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the whole earth was harvested. And after that, another angel came from the temple in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel who had power to destroy with fire came from the altar, and he shouted to the angel with a sharp sickle, Swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. All right, let me uh, unmute here for a second. So what we have here are two harvests. And, and Jesus is pictured uh, with a crown on his head and a sickle in his hand. And so that, that signifies in, in parable-type form that he is about to create a harvest. The first harvest appears to be believers. Does that make sense as you look at it? Mm -hmm. The whole earth was harvested. Notice in verses 15 and 16, no punishment is talked about here. It's a harvest. And you think of the sickle, well, you think it as, as a destruction tool. It's not. It's a harvesting tool. It's to harvest the good, uh, the good wheat. And so I think the interpretation that would say that first harvest in 15 and 16 are the believers. Now, the second one, notice that there's a difference here. After that, another angel came from the temple in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. So this is not Christ, but another angel. Then another angel who had power to destroy with fire came from the altar, and he shouted to the angel with the sharp sickle, Swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. So no judgment in, in 15 and 16. 17 and 18 uh, appear to be the the judgment of the non-believer or, or the uh, people who are anti-God. So the first harvest removes the righteous. 
The second harvest includes the removal of the unrighteous and the unrepentant who are going to face judgment. All right, so look at verse 19 now. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. The grapes were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. Now remember, God is using imagery here. Now, what did you, I know we're, let me kind of complete this and then we'll, I don't know, do you, do you want to go another 10 minutes or, or do you want to stop here for a couple moments? What? No, we can go another 10 minutes. Well, I mean, it's okay with me. Everybody else okay for another 10 minutes or so? Yeah, I think the imagery on this yeah, is a little bit gross. Oh, What's going oh, on? Okay. okay. Let's, uh, let's finish it out. It won't, it won't take long. What do you do with grapes during the day, during the time of Christ, during the time that... that you press, uh, you crush them right. with your feet. Exactly, in a wine press. Right. Now, what song does this remind you of? Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Uh, Julia... Ward Howe obviously had read this chapter of Revelation because the imagery is, is right there. So the meta metaphor that John is, is being given is the, the evil, the, the, the unbelievers, the unrepentant, the people who oppose God are like grapes in the wine press, and Christ now is stomping on the grapes to squeeze out what turns out not to be juice, but, but blood. And in the metaphor, the blood is flowing throughout uh, the city uh, like a rising river. And so this, God wants us to get this pretty devastated, devastating imagery about the judgment that's occurring here. Uh, Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, also refers prophetically to the winepress of humanity. Let me just read this very quickly. Who is this who comes from Edom, from the city of Basra, with his clothing stained red? Who is in royal robes, marching in his great strength? It is I, the Lord, announcing your salvation. It is I, the Lord, who has the power to save. Why are your clothes so red, as if you have been treading out grapes? I have been treading the wine press alone. No one was there to help me. In my anger, I have trampled my enemies as if they were grapes. In my fury, I have trampled my foes. Their blood has stained my clothes. For the time has come for me to avenge my people, to ransom them from their oppressors. I was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed, so I myself stepped in to save them with my strong arm, and my wrath sustained me. I crushed the nations in my anger. I made them stagger, stagger and fall to the ground, spilling their blood upon the earth. Okay, a few more just brief comments here. The scene we just saw there, and by the way, there are historic art, art, art about this, about Christ in the wine press. You'll see that 
in, in some of the, I believe, the, the Roman Catholic uh, art. Dr. David Hawking suggests that possibly this could also be talking about the Battle of Armageddon, which we'll get to, where the forces of the uh, evil world make a final salt upon Jerusalem. Uh, Hawking says this, The illustrations of the sickle and the harvest of both grain and grapes are picturing the judgment of the Lord that falls upon all nations at the end of the tribulation. This judgment occurs in the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is adjacent to the city of Jerusalem. It is there that all nations will come against Jerusalem. The Messiah will return at the end of the tribulation when all nations have gathered to attack Jerusalem, the nation of Israel. We call it the Battle of Armageddon. The entire land of Israel will be the wine press, and the blood of all nations who will attack Israel at that time will flow up to the horse bridles. The Messiah himself will conquer all nations and destroy their armies. His garments will be stained by the blood of his enemies. These armies will be assembled on high plateau of the nation of Jordan, south of Ammon, at the ancient site and capital named Basra. When the battle is over and the victory over all nations is won, the Messiah will place his feet on the Mount of Olives and declare victory over the entire world. That's an interpretation. It's not saying that this is the Battle of Armageddon, but it's a possibility that this also uh, may, may describe that. What we know for sure is that there will be a judgment of those who oppose God, who oppose Israel, uh, and, and, uh, and refuse uh, to accept him. And it will be like God trampling out the grapes and then the blood of those who, uh, who have opposed him will, will be shed. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a somewhat of a terrifying picture here, but it brings us back to either God was right in Scripture talking about salvation or rejection of Jesus Christ, accepting or rejecting Jesus Christ, Either God was right about that or he was wrong. If he was right, then this is, this is the end that we see for those who oppose him. And this is, but I mean, that is what is talked about in the end time, correct? And yeah. aren't there vultures that gather? Yeah, and, and we'll see that uh, during the description of the Battle of Armageddon itself. And again, some of that is some of that is going to be imagery. Some of it's literal, and we'll we'll talk about that when we unpack it. And it's not too far away. So, and I'll, I'll catch any more questions in a moment. Just to conclude here, uh, we are we have one more chapter left of the sidebars, one more chapter left of the color commentary, and then we get into in chapter sixteen. You can match up the final verse of chapter 11 to the first verse of chapter 16, and they flow right together. So we're in that, that sidebar period now. We have one chapter left, chapter 15. And then once we hit, hit chapter 16, it's pedal to the metal, and uh, we'll, we'll race uh, through and, and, and see very quickly what happens uh, as uh, at the end of the tribulation period, the millennial kingdom and, and the triumphal return of Jesus Christ. 
and uh, John's final uh, plea there, come, Lord Jesus. Okay, any other um, comments, questions? I hope we're gone. Well, I, yeah. yeah. All right, so next week we'll begin with chapter 15, and uh, we'll, we'll proceed uh, through that. Thank you for taking Thank you, Mike. <laughs> I, thank you, Lee. I, I just think this is so important that we do this, and I think all of you had great wisdom in saying, let's do Revelation, and I'm going, really? And it's uh, too bad Roshni isn't here. You know, she has the most questions. <laughs> yes, well, I'm going to send her the recording, and maybe we can address her questions at the top of next week. <laughs> I'm sure she'll have some. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, any other comments? So when we get into the Battle of Armageddon, other than just the little sidebar that we had here, when we talk about the battle, then we talk about the three nations that come against Israel, Russia, China, and Iran. They won't be named Correct. as such, but, but yeah, we'll see those geographic areas, yes. What did you say, Laurie? Run that by me again. So there's three nations that come against Israel and we're kind of seeing them rise up right now. Russia, China, and Iran. And Iran. Yes. Yeah. That rise up against Are Israel. Are you tying that into this then? Well, that is always what I have always been taught is the battle of Armageddon. Are those three the three large nations that go against Israel? Right. And, and we'll we'll unpack that and provide maybe two or three uh, different perspectives because, you know, I, I, again, what I'm trying to do is present you with other interpretations so that you're not surprised right. when you run up against them. You know, but we'll 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 detail all that absolutely. Yeah, because Armageddon comes back later on, correct? Oh yeah. This is yeah, just a little tiny, a tiny piece of it. Really, be made reference to it. Well, and, and the scripture doesn't make reference to it. David Hawking is making reference to it. Uh, again, that's his interpretation that part of what we're looking at at the end of chapter 14 uh, may be a description of what happens in the Battle of Armageddon. That's, ah. that, that's why I preface it by saying that's his uh, interpretation. Could be right, could be wrong, but it's a very interesting thing that it thinks worthy to uh, to consider. Scripture does not mention Armageddon yet. Mike, how many chapters are in Revelation? <laughs> Why are 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 you uh, are you pining to get twenty two? Right? There's twenty two. Yeah, oh, there's twenty two, and we're going to be on sixteen, huh? Uh, fifteen. One five. Yeah, one five next week, and then. Uh, and then it, it's going to rock and roll from there. I mean, well, it's very interesting. Thank you, Mike. Uh, I have you asked me. I'm the, I have the patience of a gnat, so this, <laughs> this must really be interesting. 
Yeah, actually, uh, chapter 15 is, is not very long. Uh, you know, chapter 18 and, and, uh, and chapter 19, 20 are fairly lengthy. But anyway, it'll, uh, it's very interesting. It'll move uh, quickly. And again, I thank you for putting up with me during the process. I just think this is really oh no it, it is and you put a lot of work into it mike and and we thank you for that it really you really do i can tell i tease you but it is very interesting well and i think that it's ironic that we chose this last fall yeah when we did not know that there was going to occur in the world what occurred yes oh and, i know it isn't it can you believe it just bam like that yeah yeah, yeah exactly Brenda, yeah, totally. Brenda, could we uh, impose on you to, to close us in prayer today? Sure, not an imposition well, at all. Can, <laughs> can we, uh, before we pray, though, should we be praying for Brenda for this week? Because she has some um, uh, health things that we need to hold her up. And, well, it's um, just my little and, kidney stone surgery on Friday. Yeah, right. Oh, you poor thing. Well, so we, we all need, need to pray for each other. I think it's yeah. I, I think it's so important. Uh, so, Lori, yeah. why don't you pray for Brenda, and then Brenda can close us. How about that? Okay, then, sounds good. And then I think too that um, we uh, just an update. Just keep um, Heather in prayer. She's in a battle in Capitol Hill, as you can imagine, and um, it's uh, it is a battle. And, um, and so we just pray for her, even her health, uh, that she would be kept uh, healthy and safe. And Joshua has a church that is... Um, oh, he does. That's well, wonderful. He has a church that has approached him. It's a very large church in Knoxville, and he's in discussion with them. And it would be right there, five minutes from the wonderful house that he is living in now. And, um, and so he would um, actually be doing quite a few things in children's ministry that he very much um, is in his wheelhouse. Um, children aren't in his wheelhouse, but very much uh, leadership development and, pre and teaching and et cetera, that would all fall on him as well as parent relations and etc so it would be quite an uh, a, a full job shall we say for a very large well, uh, church good i have them always on my prayer list i think uh but heather well thank you work for a congressman out of texas uh, she does and um but as you can imagine uh the uh, the next hundred days and there's there's just you know really oh yes really it is it is really uh, a a very very um difficult time and um and so she just we talked this morning and um and and the the hard part for her too is this of course obviously they don't go to the office at all um and um and and she lives alone now and so you know she's working 18 to 20 hours a day and but alone 
Um, yes, really, and Heather, you know, is a, Heather is a people person. A people person. Yeah, yes, and so is. that also pulls into, uh, you know, a, a significance um, where people are saying that are living alone. It's much harder to deal with this than having, you know, a spouse uh, or a roommate to talk with. It's depressing. Yeah, yeah. We actually had a family member that, that got depressed when her, her actually her last cat died and she was alone and she's not a depressed person. And boy, she, she started seeing herself go in to depression. So um, it's, well, it's I have very a difficult. I have a beautiful kitty that came to me if, if she would like it. <laughs> I mean, I've been praying <laughs> I've been praying about giving it away. I just didn't want it to starve, and and a lot of people. I mean, you're supposed you know, to keep that cat. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. Sandra, but anyhow, it might not be the right time for her. No, <laughs> no, and I think she's looking at a dog eventually. So, uh, but uh, but anyway, just uh, um, yeah, it, it just is really. We were when we were together a couple weeks ago. It's very evident, um, you know, that she needed. Um, uh, to really be um, more than than you would think, um, uh, right. really girded with prayer and and hearing this morning uh, of just uh, about about the week, um, it was uh, yeah yeah it's a real battle and it's a good and evil battle and as you know you it's um, it's not our battle but boy when you're in it. Uh, you know, it's challenging. Oh, it would, a, it a would be and, challenging. And uh, yeah, it would be challenging. Everything to do with uh, the political situation. So anyway, we would just appreciate prayer on that. And if she, if she is not to remain in that, then God to open other doors. Mm -hmm. But she is open to leaving the hill because she knows right now her even her health is being affected. Oh, and that's not so, worth it. Um, no. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's why we covet your prayers. Since you know the kids. Yes. Oh yeah. I will continue. I have a list. So I I will um, pray for um, Auntie Brenda. Um, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just how you um, have woven our group together. We pray that you would continue to um, give us uh, wisdom, especially Michael, as he continues to uh, teach and um, how important it is for us to be um, real um, mentors and models of you in the end times as we know that time is growing uh, inevitably close to um, to these events unfolding so use us Lord and um, people in our lives and uh, we just thank you that we get to uphold one another in prayer and uh, we pray especially for Annie Brenda this week um, we we thank you Lord that Everything has been um, brought together that uh, with when she was ill and hospitalized there with her family, and now that they can correct the situation, get rid of the kidney stone so that it won't return. And we pray, Lord, that you would just be with her, give her a peace, uh, be with the surgeon as they um, do the procedure on Friday. And we just pray, Lord, that you would, again, give her quick healing and, um, and a return to, um, to full 
health without a kidney stone. And, Amen. Um, and again, thank you so much, Lord, that um, we also know the reason why, and we just pray that they'll be able to um, uh, take care of that as well so that um, she'll be able to move on and continue to serve you um, through all she does for ABC. We thank you, Lord, and ask these things in your name. Amen. Father, I just, to lift up this group uh, that you've put together, Father, whether we are present right now or maybe listening to a recording in the future, I thank you for this study and how it is so timely. And uh, thank you for the encouragement that we receive through it, Lord. And, um, you know, as the world is unraveling, we do have peace because we as believers know how it all ends. And I just continue to pray for revival, Father, in this country and especially in this state, Lord, where there's been so many restrictions placed on us and in our worship. And I thank you for some of the news out of Southern California where there's been revival on Huntington beach and many have come and gotten saved and are baptized even in the ocean. And I just thank you for the movement of your Holy spirit father upon this world, this nation and this state. I thank you for wisdom that you have given pastor Mike and may we just have a great week Lord in you and, uh, I just thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.